When you turn on your TV, uh, you're offered uh, so many different uh, emotions that are destructive, isn't it? It doesn't matter which channel you turn to, there's a different emotion that is offered you. And so many of those emotions that you see are destructive. And some of you might go like, what do you mean watching TV? I don't watch TV. Uh, I have YouTube and <laughs> uh, Facebook. And, but as you scroll through Facebook, isn't that the same thing? You go through like a thousand emotions because you see this and you see that. And by the way, we're praying for South Africa. I don't know if you've seen, but you know, they're just really burning down and looting so many places. I have been over, over the last week and so. Uh, this morning I went on Facebook and I just connected with some of my South African friends and they're posting pictures of all these South Africans standing in line hoping to find food somewhere. Same, same old thing over and over again. So we're praying. More than provision, we're praying for wisdom, right? So that they can actually um, deal with wisdom because if you are just absolutely foolish as they have been, of course, you're going to end up being poor and hungry. Okay, so it's not poverty. It's the stupidity that precedes the poverty they experience. And so, uh, by the way, we also wanted to... Anyway, so let me just say that. As you go through, as you flip through the channels, you're often already a massive amount of, you know, destructive emotions. And, but the question is, how do we, as a people of God... Ensure that we are not silenced by this noise. Churches have been closed. So many people have been silenced in the name of who knows what. But how do we make sure that we are not silenced by the noise or engulfed in the smoke or lost in the fray? Sometimes you feel like you're drowning. You don't know where what to dress or what to point to. You don't know what to answer or what to, you don't know which fire to kill. And so I feel like as a church, it is very important for me as pastor to, to address issues of life in this way. So we're going to take one break this week as we are going through the book of John. We're going to have a standalone today as I feel very uh, impressed in my heart to share with you some direction from the Word of God regarding this. So we're going to look, finding scriptural directives, and we're going to hold on to them. On, and, and, and I really want to call this three reality checks in life. The three reality checks in life. And we want to outline these reality checks and find biblical directives. And number one, they are, number what makes life profitable? What makes life profitable? We run into so many directions attempting to make life profitable. And the question is, what does the Bible say about that? The second is, what makes life meaningful? What makes life meaningful? Again, people are saying yes to so many things in hopes that their life will have more meaning. Or well, number three, we're going to answer what makes life necessary. What makes life necessary? The futility and the uselessness of life drives people to do things they shouldn't make decisions that they are going to regret one day because they are chasing after the profitability, the meaningfulness, and of course the necessity of life. So the first is what makes life profitable? And the answer that the Bible gives us is a resounding, clear, clear statement, contentment. Contentment makes life profitable. Many are deeply satisfied with the life that they have. It is evident People will go to extremes just to attain a different life than what they currently have. They will work themselves into the ground just so that they can earn even more than what they're currently earning. They will neglect their marriage. They will neglect their children so they can reach their own personal goals. They will divorce their life partner so they can have another attempt at a possibly more functional life than what they currently have. Instead of fixing the one they have, they're looking for a better one not realizing that they are the common denominator of what they're experiencing. They will go deep into debt so that they can experience an even more convenient life. And that begs the question, what does contentment therefore look like? What is it? When the Bible says to us that contentment is the answer to a profitable life, 
Well, what does it really look like? You see, contentment comes from an inward attitude to the life that you have. It is your attitude to everything that you have in life, your station in life. It's the attitude to your gender. It's the attitude to the family you were born into. It is the attitude to the generation that you are in. It's the attitude to the world that we live in. It's the attitude to the neighbors that we do have. It's the attitude to what God has given you. Contentment hangs on that attitude. Many philosophers, authors, and religious leaders have identified the importance of contentment, and secular people have identified how important com uh, contentment is. In the third part of Henry VI, Shakespeare draws a picture of the king wandering around in the countryside. And you don't see that often. The king's always in his palace in his ivory tower. But here, in Henry VI, we see the king roaming the countryside, and he meets two strangers and tells them that he is the king. I am your king. One of them asks the king, But if thou be a king, where is thy crown? The king gives a great answer. He says, My crown is in my heart, not on my head. Not decked with diamonds and Indian stones. Nor to be seen. My crown is called content. A crown it is that seldom kings enjoy. Very difficult for a king to enjoy contentment in his heart because he wears a crown in his head. And he tries to draw from that crown what he can only get from his heart. You see, Epicurus, who is a second century um, philosopher, excuse me, third century philosopher, he said to himself, uh, said of himself, excuse me, quote, to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. If you cannot find what you have to be sufficient, if you have food, and a roof, and it's not sufficient, nothing will ever be sufficient for you. Nothing. You see, coming from a third world country and living in a first world country, I've said this a hundred times, say it again, I've met two kinds of people. Those who have little and they enjoy all of what they have, and then you have those who have much and they can't enjoy any of what they have. And it all rests or hangs upon this thing inside of our hearts called contentment or the ability to have contentment. And the Bible tells us in this there is much profit and there is much gain. I'll show it to you. One of the sayings of a famous Jewish rabbi, he says, Who is rich? He that is content with his lot. Not he who is content with a lot. There is no such person. He who, he who is content with his lot. Again, Epicurus said, after, asked, after he was asked for the secrets of happiness, he says, and I quote, Add not to a man's possessions, but take away from his desires. So he believed that if you could rid the desire, the person would be content with what he has. But as long as he has a lot of desires, no matter how much he has, he'll never be content. So what does the Bible say about contentment? Before I read it to you, I would like you to rate your own contentment level right now. One to ten. One to ten. One being the least content. Ten being the most content. What would you give yourself considering your station in life right now? Now, I don't want you to show me with fingers like, I'm a seven. <laughs> I want you to keep it to yourself for this reason. Because you know if you're lying or not. <laughs> right? I don't, want you give, I don't want to give you the opportunity to lie to me. <laughs> right? <laughs> so what does the Bible say about contentment? Again, 1 Timothy 6 verse 3. It says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words... Those of our Lord Jesus Christ, watch this, and with the doctrine confirming to godliness. There's no such thing as Bible doctrine that doesn't lead you to godliness. See? He is conceited, if he doesn't believe in that. Paul says he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. 
out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men and men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Let's just pause it for a second. These people believe that if all they do is they live godly lives, God will pour finances into their pockets. And they suppose that if they lead a life that is not godly, God will make him poor. The only problem is, evidenced by our world, there are many ungodly people with tremendous amounts of money, and there are very godly people completely broke, right? So, you know, uh, what he was saying here is that there are some people that actually believed in that idea that their godliness will cause God to be more generous toward them financially. Verse 6, it says, he says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. Godliness and contentment is what causes you to be rich no matter how little you have. Because you're content with what you've got. Verse 7, we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Watch this again. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. So when the Bible talks about people who are poor, it's talking about people with no food or covering. But if you have food and covering, the Bible doesn't see you as poor. The Bible gives you a command, be content with what you have. You've got a house, you've got a roof, you've got food, be content. And that's not a Western idea. And the Western idea is, until I have as much as you, I'm not rich. <laughs> you, as long as you have more, I'm poor. It's not true. Not true. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Verse 9, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Let me read that verse again. I think that verse is a rep it reprimands me, and, I'm, and I pray, God, it reprimands you. Verse 9, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and into a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. It is your foolish and your harmful desires that throws you into destruction, he says. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Now, it's not saying money is. It's saying that the love of that, your great desire to have more all the time, has a root, and that root produces all sorts of evil, and some by longing for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. They have struck themselves. They have pierced themselves. They have wounded themselves by longing for wealth and more and more wealth. Verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness Pursue godliness, pursue faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. These are the things that's valuable in God's sight. And he wants us to see through his eyes what is valuable and what is not. Because if we pursue after what's not valuable to God, we will wound ourselves and we will pierce ourselves. How? With griefs. Many people. Broken lives because they pursued what they should not have. However, Christianity does not require that a person choose poverty. You know, it's not, that's not what Christianity is saying to us. It's not saying choose poverty over wealth. Because there's no, no special virtue in being financially poor. The person who's financially poor is not more virtuous than the person who has much finance. There's no special virtue in having a constant struggle to make ends meet. 
That's not the message of the Bible. It's basically asking, can you go and be prosperous while being content with your station in life that God has given you? This is the question. Can you live with that tension in life? I'm content as I walk forward in life. I'm content while I build. I'm content. Progress never happens in a straight line. I'm content for, for that to be the truth. You see, Christianity does require these two things. Number one, for us to realize that things lack the power to bring contentment. That's what the message is. You will not be content with more stuff. You, more stuff will not, cannot ever make you more content. There isn't another place on planet Earth, no matter how blue the water, white the sand, and beautiful the palm trees are, it does not give you contentment. It is void of that power to give it to you. That's the first thing Christianity tells you, that things and places lack the power to produce that in you. Christianity also requires us to have a central focus on things that are permanent. He's called you to, God has called you to have your mind set on things above. Herein lies your ability to be content with what you have while you are down here on earth. So let's continue drilling down to find what contentment really is. Contentment is finding joy in what God has already given you. I love saying this, that if, if, for the one who understands salvation, realizing that God's grace and His goodness is revealed to you in the fact that He saved you, not in the fact that you got another parking spot at the mall, but in the fact that He saved you and you didn't deserve to be saved, this goodness of God, when He reveals it to you, the person who understands that can very easily say, God, if you never again do one more thing for me, I will eternally be grateful for choosing me and saving me even while I was your enemy. I didn't deserve any of what you've given me. Contentment is finding joy in what God has given you in this life. Yeah, but... The Joneses next door have more. You see? The opposite of contentment is greed. Think of it. The opposite of contentment is greed. And it is greed that destroys your capacity to enjoy what God has already given you. It is greed that makes you not be content with your roof and the food that you're eating. That which God has given you you cannot be content with it. Why? Because you have greed in your heart. It destroys your capacity to be, to be thankful. The greedy cannot be content. You go like, yeah, those rich people. Those, wait a minute. You and I both know more poor people with greed than wealthy people with greed. Because we know more poor people. <laughs> Everybody struggles with greed. When I say poor, I'm talking about relative, poor, relative poverty, American poverty, right? Contentment is a Christian grace that grows over time. If you have a three-year-old, a two-year-old, a five-year-old, you realize that it's going to take time to remove grief that's naturally in the heart. Can't, sh can't share their three M&Ms, you know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it takes time to grow content. It doesn't come quickly, easily, or naturally. Paul says that in Philippians 4.12. This is so fascinating for me because you'll see something in this verse now that I'm sure you've never seen before. In Philippians 4 verse 12 it says, I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. So he's saying that, hey guys, I have experienced having very little or nothing, and I've experienced having more than enough. I have learned the secret of being content in 
any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry, or whether having plenty or being poor. So the question here is, how did God teach Paul contentment? How did God teach Paul contentment? How did he learn to be content? By not just having much, but also by having nothing. That's how he learned contentment. God used the experience of loss to produce the good fruit of contentment in Paul's life. The experience of having nothing or the experience of losing something is the opportunity to learn contentment in your life. Jeremiah borrows a Puritan, described contentment as a rare jewel. And he was asked, how can you find joy in what God gives you, especially when it is less than you had before? How can you find joy in what God gives you, especially if God gives you less than what you had before? Like, thanks a lot, God. I used to have more. Now that I got what you gave me, I'm ending up with less. Appreciate it. <laughs> how can I find contentment in that? Burroughs responds with great wisdom. He says this, quote, A Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. Remember, Paul says, I've learned, content I've learned contentment by having little. So Burroughs says, A Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. Contentment does not come by adding to what you have, but by subtracting from what you desire. The world says that you will find contentment when your possessions rise, when your possessions rise to meet the level of your desires. The Christian has another way of contentment. That is, he, has, he can bring his desires down to his level of possessions. So desire that which God has given you. That's what he's saying. That is how you learn to be content. When you lose something, that is your opportunity to learn contentment. When you have less than what you used to have, it's your opportunity to practice contentment, just like Paul did. He learned to be content. When you see others with more, that is your opportunity to practice contentment. And I... And I, it's, very, it's pressed heavily on my heart to speak to you about this because family of God, we have to learn to be content with our station in life. Otherwise, you do not believe in a sovereign God. Now, I'm not saying that God does something to you. I'm saying that God allows. Sometimes so you can learn to be content. How else are you going to learn to be content? Have you ever seen a child who's never lost a thing in his life, who's only been given everything they've ever desired? Have you ever seen a child like that? One of the greatest thing a things a child can learn is when something's taken away from them. Gratitude, thankfulness, humility, dependence. Contentment. And the same is true for you and I. But I feel like sometimes we feel like we deserve everything we see. And no matter who we're with, it's just, you're not enough for me. I need more than you. <laughs> right? Isn't that people's attitudes? I need more than you. I need more than what I have. Nothing you do will ever be enough. Nothing I get will ever be enough. Nothing that is offered me is ever sufficient. I need more. Family, that is the voice of the devil. And if you buy into that voice, you will pierce yourself through many, many sorrows. You will walk away from people you should never have walked away from. You will give up a church family you should never have given up. Because nothing is ever enough. I mean, I can make cartwheels all day long. It's just not enough. 
I can give you everything you've ever wanted to hear every Sunday. It won't be enough. Eventually, you will, find, you will need something else. And I'm not, this is not really about the church. I'm, I love our church family. I'm just saying, can you be content with what you have, who you're with, where you're at? Can you? If you can't, watch out. You're on a road where you are about to pierce yourself through with many, many sorrows. Let me tell you, the life we have is wonderful. It's absolutely glorious. It's something to wake up to and thank God for every day. We have to learn to be thankful for what we do have and enjoy what we've got. Some people cannot enjoy their lives. Why not? Contentment. They don't have it. And like I said, other people who have lives much worse than ours, they love every bit of what they've got. Contentment empowers them to do so. The reason the Christian can bring his desire down to his possession is because, because remember that's what, that's what Jeremiah Burroughs was saying, the Christian has a different way of becoming content. He doesn't become content by adding, adding stuff until it reaches his desires. No, his way of getting to contentment is by bringing his desires down to where his station in life is at. Bring your desires down. Stop desiring so many things in the world. Stop desiring other people. Wanting to be other places with other people all the time. You open up your eyes and suddenly you realize your children are older. And you go, I just lost those years. Suddenly you, just, you realize you don't have people around you that, that, that really made life work. All right, let me keep going. The reason the Christian can bring his desires down to his possessions is because he is first and foremost eternally minded and therefore attaches little value to temporal stuff while attaching great value to eternal things. That's why he can bring his desires down to what he already has instead of trying to always bring what he has up to what he desires. Secondly, the Christian, his desire is for God and not for the things that God provides. His desire is for God, and not for the things that God provides. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, it says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Look at that verse. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. If you're never content with what you have, it's because you love money. That's what the verse is saying. You see, the Christian whose value system is heavenly and not earthly is content in this world. And that is true wealth. The Christian whose value system is heavenly and not earthly, he is content in this world. So when I become discontent with the world that I'm living in, this is a sign, this is a red flag that goes up and says, Jacques, you are starting to no longer be eternally minded. You're no longer loving the things of heaven, but you're valuing the things of earth. So number one, the first question we answered here is what makes life profitable? What makes life profitable? Contentment. It says it right there. Now godliness with contentment plus contentment equals gain. Godliness plus contentment equals gain. Number two, the question that we're dealing with is what makes life meaningful? What makes life meaningful? And the answer in the Bible is very clear, responsibility. <laughs> responsibility. No life can have meaning when it doesn't have something it's responsible for. 
In a postmodern world, instead of being held accountable and responsible, it is the norm for people to shift blame. Where does it come from? Out of the garden. The moment God went to Adam, said, Adam, where are you? What have you done? He says, well, God, it's this woman you gave me. He immediately shifts the blame off of him to Eve. God looks at Eve. Eve immediately says, it's that snake. Immediately she shifts the blame. Well, that is the result of sin. That's exactly what happened. The first thing that happens after sin is blame shifting. Blame shifting. But God has called us not to shift blame, but to take responsibility. You see, in this world, in our postmodern world, if the child does well at school, hey, he's a genius. If he fails, that stupid teacher doesn't know what she's doing. Right? When somebody chooses a criminal lifestyle, society gets blamed for it, society gets punished for it. If a person does something crazy, it's always because of their broken childhood and it's somebody else's fault. That's why this person's acting up, acting all crazy, living a criminal lifestyle. I saw my mom post something on Facebook. For, uh, it was a quote from John MacArthur. It says this. John MacArthur says, quote, Today sin is called sickness. So people think it requires therapy, not repentance. Oh, no, the person is not well. No, the person needs to repent. That's what they need. Right. See, the Bible, on the other hand, teaches the concept of personal responsibility to the point where you cannot hold somebody guilty for their father's sins. You can't hold one person guilty for somebody else's sins. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins. And the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior. And wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. Wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. Society has moved away from individual guilt and individual responsibility and has moved towards corporate societal guilt. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10 and 11 says, Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked! It will go badly with them, for what he deserves, he for what, he deserves, for what he deserves will be done to him. So the person with zero responsibility in life really has zero meaning to his life. The only thing he has to look forward to is that which he deserves. So your level of responsibility determines the level of meaningfulness in your life. I want to read to you 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now Paul so clearly articulates this. He so clearly holds people accountable for what they are responsible for. And he does not let them get away with it. Now, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about life. And he says in verse 6, Now, we command you, brother, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So he's actually telling you, stay away from certain people. Those who lead unruly lives. Verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day. So that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used, uh, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So Paul is saying those who are unwilling to work, talking about the men, the men who are unwilling to work, uh, they should go hungry. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, an irresponsible life, unwilling to be responsible, leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such a person, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. 
Now, when it comes to being responsible as a family member, postmodern society lacks deep thought. I don't know if you've noticed. People are so willing to live with just shallow thinking. Just shallow thinking. Like, for instance, you know, I see one of my friends on Facebook saying now that South Africa has burnt all of their, their grocery stores down and they've looted everything one week, week two, now everybody's hungry. And now the guy's posting, I hate evil. I mean, I hate poverty. Excuse me. I hate poverty. Like, I wanted to say, but I couldn't because I don't want to be heartless. But uh, I, I hate stupidity. You don't have to be poor. There's, there's enough gold, silver, platinum, coal. That's the richest soil in all of the world. Why are they poor? Stupid. That's why they're poor. Why are they without? They don't have to be without. They can be, they can be supplying for the, rest, for the rest of the nations around them. But they can't. I, I hate the stupidity that comes with it. You know, that produces it. The cause. Everybody's pointing to the effect. Now that's shallow thinking, don't you think? Just to go like, I'm looking at the effect. I hate that effect. No, I hate what brought that effect on. And so shallow thinking only allows you to look toward today. Oh, there's something in the grocery store I want. I'm going to go get it for today. And then I'm going to burn it down as I walk out. Well, then what about tomorrow? So we have to make sure that if you look at a situation like that, put it into the context of your life. How deep do your thoughts go about your life? How Do you have long-term thoughts? Yeah, I do. How long are your thoughts? Well, I think about next year. Well, how about 10 years? How about 20 years? How about knowing that you're not going to stay young forever? <laughs> how about eternity? <laughs> Who says that? I don't like this church. <laughs> no, seriously, like, how about eternal thoughts? You see? The further forward you can think, the deeper your thoughts go. The more shallow your thoughts are, the more immediate you think. I'm two years old, and I want what I want now, and I want all of it. And I'm never happy until I get everything. And then when I get everything, I'm still not happy, and I don't know why. Now I want more. And it's all your fault. But that's how society is trained now to think. Postmodern society lacks deep thought. They can't think beyond today, tomorrow. Consider the shallow and short-sighted perspective of this talk show host. I have a little video for you. And um, I asked Han to cut it short. I know you guys want to hear this man's response. But here's a question that just proves where people are at. Talking about responsibility. Most young women are taught badly that the most important thing that they'll do in their life is their career. And that's simply not true. It's not true for most people and certainly not true for most women. I certainly wasn't taught that myself. I, I feel like I'm doing quite well in my career, but yeah. I still have pressures. Uh, people who are saying, you know, when are you actually going to see, succeed properly by having a baby? Yeah. I kind of find yeah. that slightly offensive. I'm 38. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like I've got through my early 30s uh, without that, without almost luckily, mm. when I look at what my friends have to deal with, with their children, mm. I almost feel a little bit blessed. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that? To this age, um, without the burden of children, many ladies today are falling into that trap, viewing pregnancy as a disease yeah. and homemaking as, as, as degrading uh, instead of viewing it as a God-glorifying idea, a God-glorifying thing. That's, that's a calling in life, right? It's like one of the most valuable things you can do in your life is be a homemaker. But no, that's degrading because, you know, I feel kind of blessed that I don't have to do that. <laughs> what, what that woman said is in essence that she is free to have her own life thanks to the fact that she has not been hemmed in and imprisoned by having to have children. God forbid she ever has to minimize her personal ambition for the sake of caring for little children. 
and that people would, ve would, be, would not be absolutely uh, have their character assassinated for being so selfish and still finding that to be somehow a moral thought or a novel thought in society that they would say those things publicly. But, you know, society does the same thing. It just actually takes responsibility away from people all the time, not realizing that dignity comes from you being able to be responsible. That's where dignity comes from, that you, that you have a job and that you can build something, a life, that you have a responsibility and that you can be a responsible person. That brings dignity, that gives meaning to your life. Imagine the person who has no people they're responsible to, nobody, nobody that they need to be responsible in order to care for. How meaningful is that person's life? Not meaningful at all if you compare it to the person who has a thousand people that they're responsible for. That's a meaningful life. Society eliminates meaning in a father's life in the same way. When a father is told you shouldn't have five kids, you shouldn't be driving a minivan, come on, get a life. You shouldn't be boggled down with family matters. You shouldn't be out. You should be out there making a life, making a living, you know, living it up. You see, little do we realize that when it has all been said and done, it is some of the most taxing and mundane responsibilities in life that produces the most meaning in our lives. All you have to do is go to a funeral and listen to how people talk to the person who is now dead. Those little things that they were always so responsible with. Caring for grandchildren and caring for kids and caring for their families and taking care of the challenges of life. And, and undoing those things that are destroying people around them and, 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 and lifting people up and protecting people from evils. Those people, you know, go to their funeral and you just hear how people sing their praises because their life was so meaningful to so many because they were so responsible with what they had. I mean, go to the person who lived only for themselves. Only for themselves. Go to their funeral. You'll hear just a bunch of jokes being made about how vain they used to be. That's all. Yeah, they used to love, they used to love doing this, they used to love, that's all. Look, you're talking to somebody that's, that's, that's done funerals my whole life. <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell you how many funerals I have officiated. The people who live the most meaningful lives are the ones who are willing to commit to even the most mundane things in life. Those little responsibilities that are so taxing that seem to never take you anywhere. But hey, you're going to be responsible because you're going to be faithful because you love people. Go to a funeral of a person who's given up so much for the sake of others, and you will see people celebrate that person even as he goes into his grave because he lived a meaningful, fruitful life. Why? Because he was responsible. So we asked the question, what makes life meaningful? Responsibility. The first question was, what makes life profitable? And that's, contentment the third question is what makes life necessary what makes life necessary it's short it's sweet it's powerful but it's true relationships period relationships makes life necessary you can live in a paradise with bad relationships and it'll be hell on earth. You can live in a desert with wonderful people, wonderful relationships, and you'll be in paradise because relationships is what, is what life is made out of. God sent Jesus so relationship with him could be reconciled. Philippians 1 verse 21 says, for to me to live is Christ and to, God, to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart with 
having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul is saying, listen, for me to stay alive is a sacrifice. Let me let you. <laughs> I'm sacrificing to stay here so that you can be blessed. Yet to me, to remain on, on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain on and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Can you see how necessary Paul was? What made him necessary? Yeah. Those people that were in relationship with him found him to be so necessary. Of course, because of his ministry, right? Because of his connection with God. But what if Paul had the connection with God and the revelation that he had with God, but what he decided to do is he became a recluse. What if Paul became a recluse? Would he be necessary? Not at all. Yeah, but he knew so much. Didn't matter. The reason he was necessary was because that conduit through which what God had showed him flowed into relationship. Relationship's important. And uh, I wanted to bring this to you because, number one, you and I, living in, a, in an age that we, we, would, we love to criticize our age. I do it all the time, right? The, this generation we live in, the age we live in. And we have to be responsible to point out the stupidity that sometimes exists. We have to point it out. But at the same time, be content. The fact that you get to be in this day and this age in history. Isn't that true? Paul was. He says, this is a sacrifice for me to continue living on the earth. It's a sacrifice for me, but I choose to be with you. So number one, we have to learn to be content. I love my station in life. It is filled with challenges. It is filled with frustration. Daily. <laughs> daily. I am concerned daily for things. Paul was talking about the burden of the church that was upon him. I, I, I don't understand Paul's burden, but I can tell you the burden. I, I recognize some of it. The burden of the church. But the burden of loved ones. And the burden of, of, of posterity and children. And the burden of, of all these broken things that are around us all the time. Do you know like as a pastor, you get to meet people... For most part, when things break down, right? Like they're broken part, that's where you meet people, right? And, and you're there. And I, lo I love people. I love working with people. But I can just tell you, we've got to learn to be content. No matter how, how many times things break around us, right? I'm content with you. I'm content with those God has placed in my life. I'm content with my station. And the only way I got there. Learning to be content is by experiencing loss after loss after loss after loss after frustration, after irritation, after being annoyed all day long, after burdens, after brokenness. And that's where we have to, we have to move to. I'm, I'm still learning contentment, and I know you're still learning contentment, and we have to keep on. Because there's great gain in it. Oh, your life is so rich when you're content with what you have. And then number two, we have to just buckle up, put on our big boy pants and become responsible. I mean, how many of you wouldn't want? I mean, okay, let me know. There's not one of us that don't have a utopia somewhere in our, that we want for life, right? Every single one of us in our minds, we have a utopia that we want to go and, and experience. With, you know, somewhere else, with someone else, doing something else. Every one of us. Folks, that's, that's not a healthy thing. Do you know that the Bible actually says 
Don't talk about yesterday. Don't talk about those good old days. No, no, today's good. You know the Bible says that? We can live in our minds dreaming about the good old days. Oh, how good those days were. These days suck. Oh, those days were awesome. Those days were awesome. And then when we're thinking, finished thinking about the good old days, we start dreaming about that future utopia, that future utopia. And guess what? Yeah, you become irresponsible with where you are, discontent with what you've got, and you, yeah, you live a total miserable life. Unfruitful. Unfruitful. So we have to learn to be responsible with what we have, where we're at. Your life is not over. Your life is not over. I don't, the sky is not falling. No, it's not. And if you say, well, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, even all the more so if you're a premillennialist, for most part, people are premillennials. There's a few that are postmillennial, believing that Jesus isn't coming soon. Both are okay. Don't kill each other, but I'm just saying, if you're a premill, it doesn't matter. Jesus still said, occupy until I come, didn't he? So be responsible with what you have, even the mundane things in life, because it's what makes your life valuable. It's what makes it meaningful. If you feel like there's no meaning to your life, find some great responsibility within your reach and take it on. And then number three, the only thing that makes you necessary to others is the relationship that they have with you. Every single one of you can point to somebody in your life and say, that person is very unnecessary in my life. <laughs> Every one of us have a person you can point to yeah, that person, very unnecessary. I would be just fine without that person. But then every single one of us, there is a person we can point to and go like, necessary. And let me, let me tell you, you're in great relationship with that person. You're in a deep relationship with that person. They're not disposable. So today I wanted to go through this checklist with you and make sure that we look at our checklist Knowing that there's profitability in life. Stop chasing after the wrong things, running into the wrong direction, barking up the wrong tree. Because you'll pierce yourself through with many sorrows. Be responsible where you're at. Bloom where you are planted. And do not disregard the people around you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you.